Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. What has been the most memorable meal of your entire lifetime? Think about it. Yeah, I hear you. You're thinking about ingredients. You're thinking about maybe it's today. I don't know. What has been the most memorable meal of your entire lifetime. This past week, our directional leadership team took a few days away and we went away. Now we do this yearly. There they are right there. You can see it. We go away every year and we take some time to plan and pray about what God is going to do at One Church TO in this next season. So it was a fantastic uh, time away together. You might not know everybody here. You'll, You'll know this guy. It's Pastor Jonathan. He's our lead pastor. He leads the directional leadership team. We all love him. Uh, this guy is Ziad Alabuni. You might not know Ziad. Ziad is our um, directional lead of operations. So he oversees finance. He oversees the facility. He oversees HR. He oversees so many areas that not many people get to see. But let me tell you, we would be a mess without Ziad sitting in that seat. And then there's Pastor Matt in his hat there. Uh, He's taking the picture. And you know him. He is our directional lead of the creative team. So he oversees our gatherings, communications, productions. And then there's myself, and I oversee um, kind of the ministries, Next Gen, Adult Men, and Outreach at the church. And so as we were away during one of our meals, Pastor Jonathan, he stopped like what we were doing, and he goes, hey, guys. What's been the most memorable meal of your entire life? And so we sat there for a second, and then we began to share around the table the particulars of the foods that we had eaten at what we would say were our most memorable meals. And so someone talked about steak cooked over a bonfire deep in the country or like the the forest of of Northern Ontario. Uh, Someone mentioned lobster served on a beach in Cuba. Someone said homemade pasta in the kitchens of Italy. Uh, Ukrainian borscht that has been served in very simple wooden bowls. And even a lively jigs dinner that was eaten in Newfoundland. Um, But it was interesting. As we began to share about these wonderful meals that we had ate in our past, rather than focusing on the food that had been served, we started talking about the people that we had sat around those tables with. Yes, the food that we were talking about had been incredible, but it was the people who sat around those tables that had seared those moments into our minds. So going back to the question, what, is, what has been the most memorable meal of your life? Maybe, maybe it was about food, but I would guess that probably it had something to do with the people that sat around the table as you ate that meal. Friends, we are relational beings. If you read through the Bible, you're going to read thousands of references where God talks about designing us for relationships. First, God created us to be in relationship with him, so much so that he reiterates a promise over a dozen times, dozens of times throughout history, and he says this to his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He designed us 
to be in relationship with him. Those are just some of the references. There's more where God makes this promise to his people. It's like it's in the very makeup of our DNA. We were designed to be in relationship with our creator. Even when humanity messes this up over and over and over, God continues to design pathways so that he can remain in relationship with us. Now, secondly, God creates us to be in relationships with each other, you and me. See, right at the beginning of creation, God just doesn't create one human to be in relationship with because that would have fulfilled what he wanted to do. God wants to be in relationship with us. If he had just designed one person, he could be in relationship with that person and fulfill what he wanted. But instead, God creates more than one person so that they can be in relationship with each other. In Genesis, it says this, it is not good for man to be alone, that I've designed them because they're to be in relationship with other people. Probably one of my most favorite reminders in scripture is found in the Psalms and it says this, God places the lonely in families. God places the lonely in families. You know what, this statement alone is like a bomb to someone who is brokenhearted or lonely hearted. But it's also an instruction for those of us who are blessed with families because there's a call on us, on those of us who have open, open families to develop space for those who might not. See, our families should include widows and orphans. Our families should include people that look differently and think differently than us. Our families should include people that we worship with as a church family and also neighbors who might not even understand who Jesus is yet. We're going to get to that in a little bit today. But because throughout scripture, God is continually telling his people, letting us know, you need each other. And so it starts to work out something like this. We have you. That's you. You look so great today. You're meant to be in relationship with God and you're meant to be in relationship with others. If one of these is off, you're going to feel it in your life because we function best when we have both of those relationships happening in our lives. And so today, if you haven't guessed it, we're going to be talking about relationships. Now, before we get into it, though, before we look at today's text, I wanted to highlight that we're actually going to be talking about healthy relationships. Now, recognize I did not say perfect relationships because I don't know about you, but we're all humans in here. And because we're all humans in here, that means there's broken places inside all of us. We have this saying that all the perfect people left a long time ago. Unfortunately, it's just you and me remaining. And so the reality is that there's some measure of brokenness in each, inside each of us. And so there's areas in my life in which I don't measure up, and there's areas in those I'm in relationship with where they just don't measure up. We make mistakes in, these, in our relationships. But as we look at today's passage and aim to apply it to our lives, I want to pause and recognize that the, the writer is actually talking about healthy, life-giving relationships, relationships that are healthy and instructions to be put around them. But you might find yourself in an unhealthy relationship where the truths of what we're going to talk about actually are a little bit impossible to apply in this season of your life. And if that's so, I want you to know that this past spring, we had a health series, we went through a health series, and during that health series, we actually explored the dynamics of what an unhealthy relationship looks like and how to put boundaries around a relationship like that. And so if that would be helpful if you find yourself in a, a relationship that's unhealthy, or maybe you just need a refresher, I'm gonna just, 
just encourage you to to go back to that teaching and watch that teaching because it's really gonna speak to what area you might be in in your life right now. But today we're gonna be talking about healthy relationships. So it's kind of like a part two to that teaching way back in the spring. So we're actually in the middle of our anomaly series. And as we're talking about this anomaly series, it's actually based on Colossians. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's based on a book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul, or it's a letter that Paul wrote to some followers of Jesus. And he was writing to them, encouraging them actually to be anomalies within their culture, to be different than those who are already in their culture. And so the first week we looked at Colossians 1. That was, uh, we talked about how Jesus needs permission to lead in every compartment of our lives. If I call myself a follower of Jesus, remember Pastor Keith had that big um, case up here. If I call myself a follower of Jesus, then Jesus needs to have access to lead in every compartment of my life. And then Pastor Jonathan talked about Colossians 2 and helped us understand that the secret to living, the fact that the reality is I'm not enough, but the secret to living is that Jesus is enough and Jesus actually lives within his followers and that should lead to change in our lives. And so we're gonna go to chapter three today where we're gonna discover that as followers of Jesus, our relationships with other people actually need to flow out of the relationship that I have with Jesus based on Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. So we're gonna jump right into the text. It's Colossians 3 verses 18 to 22 and let's read it together. It's a fun one. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Parents, do not aggravate your children, or they will be to come, become discouraged. Now, this is a familiar text. If you've ever kind of been in a church building before, you may have heard this text. And as we approach texts that we have maybe heard before, our tendency as humans would be to just think of the text as we've always thought of the text. We have this tendency of sometimes as humans reading God's word, but not allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. So I want you to give your, yourself a little shake, maybe roll your shoulders Give yourself a little movement. I want you to shake your head a little bit. I want you to give your mind a little bit of permission that we're going to kind of dig a little bit deeper and see what Paul was actually saying to the original readers of this text and what the Holy Spirit might want to say to us in 2023 today. First, I want you to notice that there's two sections to this text. The first part deals with that marriage partnership, or I like to call it a covenant relationship between two romantic partners. So he first deals with this, and then he goes on to deal with that parent and child relationship that exists. The first is this covenant relationship. And what does he say? He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Now, this is a text that shows up in wedding ceremonies, doesn't it? As a pastor, I often encounter couples who just assume that they have to use this text as a part of their vows without understanding what it actually means. Here's a secret, you don't have to. Like you can write whatever vows you wanna write and you can work with your pastor, but you, you don't have to use these as your vows. People actually think you do. In fact, Skip and I did not use these 
uh, as part of our wedding vows. And the reason that we didn't was because I know that there's this improper understanding of what they actually mean. And so if there's an improper understanding of what a text actually means, we often can apply meaning to it that the writer never actually intended it to mean. So let's start what, with what this text does not mean, okay? First, this text is not saying that women are to be silent and obedient. That was true, I probably wouldn't be standing here because I'm talking, but anyways. Women are not to be silent and obedient. It's also not saying that a woman's ranking is less than in a marriage than her male counterpart. And it's certainly not saying that her opinion holds less weight or that she should just blindly follow wherever her husband wants to lead her or her family. It's not saying that. It's important to understand why Paul was writing to the Colossians. First, we know that they were followers of Jesus, and that's really important because everything we're going to talk about applies to followers of Jesus. Those of us who have decided that we're going to follow Jesus with our lives, these instructions apply to us only. And as followers of Jesus, Paul was urging these people to live differently than the world around them. He was challenging them, be an anomaly compared to the rest of society. And so that others might see that there's a difference in the way that a follower of Jesus chooses to live and how other people decide to live. And so in this culture, a female's obedience to the male hierarchy was already an expectation going on within the world. Think uh, mojo dojo casa houses, if you will. In this culture, women were already seen as less than their male counterparts. So it's impossible. Paul is not urging the followers of Jesus to re replicate what is already happening in culture. Rather, he's saying, don't live like the culture. Be different. So if the culture lived this way, Paul was telling the followers of Jesus to live a different way. In fact, he was saying, your homes should be run very differently than the homes in your society and culture. Now, the original word that Paul uses for submit that we see today actually comes from a Greek word that he wouldn't have said submit to them. They didn't have English. They would have spoken Greek. And so he would have used a Greek word that actually shows up in a lot of military language. Uh, this word highlighted the idea that you should be crystal clear what team you were fighting on. That there should be no doubt exactly what team of the war that you were fighting on. It's best translated actually to mean understand and support. And it kind of means like you would go to battle with and for someone. Go to battle with and for. So what Paul is actually saying is, wives, go to battle with and for your husbands. He's saying that in a marriage there should be no doubt that you are on the same team as your partner. Now, another reality that was at play for the original readers of the text was there was women who had converted to Christianity that he was writing to, but they found themselves married to partners who had not chosen yet to be followers of Jesus. Now, there are many reasons for that. One of the main reasons was that other religions made it much easier to practice patriarchy and suppress women in the culture. And so a change of heart and a change of religion and an aligning with Jesus would have required men to leave their religions and convert to Christianity. And that meant a lot of their benefits would have to be given up because Jesus preached this message of inclusion and equality, which was much different 
than the culture that they were currently living in. And so when Paul says, wives, go to battle for your husbands, another reason he's saying this is that he's actually urging these women to go to battle for their husbands' souls. Like Pastor Keith was teaching us last week how to intercede in the invisible realm through prayer so that their partners might come to learn who Jesus was and decide to follow him. So Paul is certainly not telling these women to be quiet or silent. Rather, he's saying, get loud. Let there be no doubt of what team you are on. Let your partner have no doubt that you are on their team. Go to battle beside him and for him. This is why choosing a lifelong partner is so very important. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say, I follow Jesus, then these instructions are for you. And you are actually being instructed by God in your marriage to continually strive to honor, respect, support, and go to battle with your partner. And so you're either going to obey God in these instructions, or you're not going to obey him. That's why who you date is so very important. Because if you're dating someone right now, and you can't respect some of their choices, or support some of their decisions, even in this stage, there's no way that you're going to be able to fulfill this commitment and this instruction of God and support and respect their decisions when you are married. Choosing a partner is likely the most important decision that you will ever make outside of following Jesus. So we need to choose really, really wisely. Now, getting back to the text, next Paul turns to the husbands. So he's dealt with the wives. He's talked to the wives, given them some parameters. He goes to the husbands and Remember, these are followers of Jesus that he's talking to, or possibly men who will follow Jesus in the future and eventually read these words. And so this is what Paul says to them. He says, husbands, love your wives, never treat them harshly. I want to look at this word love right here. We can assume we know what it means. Uh, I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. So love here doesn't mean sexual or romantic love, though we know these are very important in a marriage, but Paul is not saying sexually or romantically love your wife. In fact, the word that Paul chooses to use is actually the word agape. And agape love means self-sacrificing, giving, and this idea of absorbing, absorbing. See, this type of love isn't the feeling of being in love. Paul's not saying, make sure you always feel like you're in love with your partner. Rather, he's saying, no, 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 lay down your life. You're going to make a daily choice to sacrifice for the benefit of your partner. What does laying down your life look like? Well, it means giving to your partner without expecting any return on your investment. Paul is asking these husbands to continually love their wives, even when their love might be rejected or unreciprocated. In fact, the word agape is the same word that the Bible uses to, to describe Jesus' love for you and for me. It's free. There's no strings attached to this type of love. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we can admit that this love is a little bit difficult, maybe almost impossible for us to do in our own humanity. I don't know about you, but it does not come naturally for me to lay down my life for another person. But here's the reality. I'm not asked to do this on my own. Remember, these are instructions for followers 
of Jesus. They're meant for individuals who have Jesus living inside of them. They're meant for individuals who have given Jesus the leadership over every compartment of their life. So it's only when Jesus lives actually inside of me that he can change me from that selfish human being that I I tend to be and form in me a reflection of himself. The truth is that if I'm ever able to offer this type of support and love to a partner that Paul is instructing us to, it's only because Jesus can empower me and change me to become more like him. And so after Paul has talked about marriage, about this covenant relationship, he goes to address the relationship between a parent and a child. And the text says this, children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Parents, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. I know a lot of you are sitting here being like, oh, why don't we bring the kids in for this portion of the message? I, I know they left. We probably, Pastor Jessica, should all, I, parents online, you're probably inviting your kids into the room right now. I don't know, maybe you shouldn't do that. We'll see. The word here, obey, means to accept discipline and guidance, to heed wisdom and actually learn from it. Our kids should not be making the same mistakes that we did because we should be able to lovingly discipline them and disciple them so that they prevent them from making the decisions and the choices that we made that took us down the wrong path. Now, obedience for children is not an option according to scripture. It's not an option. It's actually one of the commandments. Children obey your parents. And it's the first commandment that actually comes with a blessing. The Bible says that if children choose to obey their parents, they're going to experience what the Bible calls the blessing of a full life. Now, what parent wouldn't want that for their children? A full blessed life because they choose obedience. Any parent in this room, any parent joining us online, you would agree, of course we want that for our kids. But there's a hindering factor to this, Paul says. There's almost a guaranteed way to prevent your children from choosing to obey you. And it's this one, when parents aggravate their children. Another translation uses the word provoke. Now, let's let's just be honest. There's a massive power dynamic and difference between parents and their young children. For the most part, parents hold all the power And our children are often subject to our decisions, our choices, our actions, even our unregulated emotions. And these things actually have the power to cause our children to choose not to obey. If I was going to make a list of aggravating actions that would cause your children not to obey, some of them would be this, embarrassing or humiliating them, stirring up or irritating them, frustrating or teasing them, abusing or hurting them, neglecting or ignoring them, lording your power over them, or using your power to manipulate them. Now, this list is really the complete opposite of how our children should feel in relation to our power over them. Our children should see our power as like superpowers. It should make them feel incredibly protected, incredibly supported, encouraged, provided for because they are under our leadership. And this Paul says, if if that's happening, if our power is like a superpower to them, it would make it very easy for them to choose to follow God's instructions to obey us. Now, 
For some of us, you might read this list and it might be incredibly painful because this might describe some of your um, past experiences with your parent and child relationship. Maybe it's a reality that this was the reality of your relationship when you were growing up. Maybe this is the relationship that you had with your parents. It's difficult to acknowledge that our parents are not perfect, that they're humans, and that comes with pain and imperfection sometimes. But, but whether we had a difficult relationship with our parents or a beautiful one, there comes a point in everyone's life where we have to, what I call, grow up from our families. This means there comes a point in life, usually when we become young adults, where we recognize we are no longer in the parent and young child relationship anymore. See, the text that we're looking at today actually is for children who are dependents of their parents. But as we grow up, we become adults, and the instruction changes for us. No longer are we called to obey our parents, we're actually called to honor them, to show care and respect for the people who have raised us. And so if this list is a reality of your relationship with your parents growing up, the good news is that you're at an age where you now grow up from your families, whether you have or whether you haven't. There's permission in here to grow up from your family of origin. You're no longer called to obey, but rather you're called to show respect and honor to them as individuals. And you're also given the opportunity to do better for the next generation. Now, that requires work on our parts, and I'd highly recommend the path of therapy and counseling if that's you, because therapy opens doors of healing for us, and it helps us to fix things that we may have gone through so that we can show up for the next generation in a way that our, or the generation before us was never able to do. Friends, the sobering reality is that we parents are often the reason our children are unable to obey the instruction that is given to them by God. And so if you're a parent of an adult or a young adult child, it might be difficult to look at this, look at this list and realize maybe I missed the mark. You might realize, you know what, maybe I need to apologize. Maybe it's gonna take a little bit of humbleness on my part to go to my adult grown child and say, hey, I made some mistakes along the way. The truth is that none of us are perfect, and so all of us have made mistakes, but as a pastor, I've seen that this step alone, when, when parents are able to go to their adult children and say, hey, I missed the mark. I, I may have not done it perfectly well. What happens is there's this like healing that happens, and a new stage in the family kind of opens up, and those adult children are able to start respecting and honoring their parents in ways they never have before. Another question you might want to ask yourself, if you are a parent of a young adult or an adult child is, am I still expecting or demanding that my adult children obey me? See, if that's the case, you need to immediately stop doing that because it's no longer a requirement on their part. And you're unfairly asking them to do something that God is not instructing them to do. Remember, respect and honor is what God is asking of them now. And so how do you do that? Well, you allow them to sit at your tables and share their opinions, even if they might be a little bit different than you. You make space in your family for them to lead in areas where they are gifted and talented. You make space for them to be themselves at your table. And what happens when we do that is that a mutual understanding of trust and respect starts to develop within the family. Now, for those of us who are parents of young children, 
it might also be hard for you to look at this list. If I'm honest, I can look at this list and realize there have been areas where I probably made it harder for my young children to obey me, and by obeying me, obey God. There are times where our emotions, our power, or decisions make it hard for our children to obey us. And there's areas, even in my life, that we need to ask our kids for forgiveness. You know what, I missed the mark. I'm gonna do better next time, I'm gonna grow. Friends, there's no perfect parents in this world. Only God perfectly parents us. And so the reality is that we have some work to do on our part so that our children might have every opportunity to obey God's instruction as they choose to obey us or honor us depending on their ages. You see, Paul's heart in writing this portion of the letter was to remind these people that they were followers of Jesus. And so when we choose to follow Jesus, we're called to choose God's ways over our human tendencies. And as we do that, Paul is saying that should show up in the relationships that we have with other people. If there were two truths to boil down this passage that I think Paul really wants these readers to grasp and maybe us today is this. The first is, I'm a follower of Jesus first and all of my other relationships will flow out of that. See, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I should be a better parent. I should be a better partner. I should be a better daughter. I should be a better sister. In all my relationships, I should be better because my treatment of others is actually a direct reflection of my obedience to Jesus. See, he calls me to be patient with, faithful to, loving towards and supportive of those who I find myself in relationship with. Friends, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, others should be experiencing the benefits of my relationship with him. See, if I follow Jesus, my children should experience a better version of me and a better relationship with me. It should be easy to be in relationship with me if I'm a follower of Jesus. If I'm a follower of Jesus, my partner should experience a better version of me and a better relationship with me because of my relationship with Jesus. The second one, my actions make it easier or more difficult for someone to follow God. This one's a hard one. See, it should be easy for my young children to obey me or my adult children to respect me because as a follower of Jesus, I should be going out of my way to show that I support them, that I champion them, that I'm willing to protect them. It should be easy for my partner to love and support me because my actions should actually prove whose team I'm on, that they can always trust me because I will always be supporting, defending, interceding, and sacrificing for them. It's as if the relationships within our core families are somewhat of a litmus test for how our relationship with God is. Let me show you what I mean. Our human tendency, like we established earlier, is to see it like this. That's me or you. I have relationship with God and I have relationship with others. And this is how my relationships function. But instead, Paul is saying that we should view our relationships like this. That's you. You're in relationship with God. Remember Colossians 1 and 2. And that actually flows into my relationships with other people. See, community matters greatly to God. He built us to live inside of it, which is why he goes to great lengths throughout scripture, throughout humanity, throughout history, 
to protect us from hurting each other while we live in community. See, God knows that we have the power to either bring life or death in the relationships that we find ourselves in. He knows that he needs to actually set guidelines on the communities that we're in, like Colossians 3. And the most loving guideline that he could ever provide for us was actually to put the relationship with him between us and other people. It's a theme that we see go throughout history, go throughout the Bible, um, especially in Paul's letter. God is always, uh, Paul's letters, God is always asking his followers to obey him as they live in community with other people. People. Now, one of the most beautiful illustrations I can find in the Bible about this is actually found in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read it for you, and I, you're probably going to, um, you've heard this book, you've heard this passage before. It's familiar because it's a passage that we, we often use when we lead communion, or the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, as it's often been called. And so it goes like this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, well, I'll just remind. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, when we read this portion of scripture, sometimes I think we falsely believe that what's happening here is Paul's leading some people through communion. And so he's leading people through communion and then we use it to lead people through communion. But that's not actually what's happening here. Rather, remember, this is a letter. Paul is writing to the followers of Jesus, and he's actually correcting their approach to communion. See, it's been reported back to Paul that this community of believers is actually coming together like a faith community to take communion and remember Jesus' sacrifice. But instead, the followers of Jesus were coming together, but they're separating the rich from the poor. Like the, the rich are sitting on one side of the room, the poor are sitting at the other. The rich, wealthy, affluent Christians are actually sitting at these beautiful set tables with an abundance of food. And then the poor Christians who have little or lack, they're actually being shoved in the corners and fed the scraps of the meal. And so when you understand what's going on in this passage, it changes it a little bit for us. And so before this passage that we just read, I'm going to read to you what Paul says to them before he goes into this. And he says this, it sounds as if more harm than good is being done when you meet together. When you meet together, you aren't really interested in the Lord's Supper. And as a result, you are go some are going hungry while others are getting drunk. What am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to praise you? Well, certainly I am not going to do that. So next time, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other, Paul says. You see, Paul was correcting these early Christians, letting them know that how they were practicing taking communion was completely against God's design for his community. See, God's plan for his followers was actually to live within communities that were anomalies in their culture. 
God had designed his community to have way different markers and postures than the communities you would have found in the, in the culture. And four of these postures or markers that God had designed his communities for would be humble and healthy and welcoming and inclusive. First, humble and healthy. God had designed his communities, remember, so that my relationship with Jesus actually comes before my relationship with other people. See, my obedience to Jesus, this is what's going to keep me humble and healthy. I'm going to obey Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And others who I'm in relationship with will benefit from that because of my relationship with Jesus, because I choose to obey him. Welcoming and inclusive, well, this was radical. This was radical for the culture because they were not welcoming and they were not inclusive. But Jesus had spent his entire ministry teaching that all were welcome at the table of God. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, young and old. See, Jesus' heart, his words, his actions were always encouraging his followers to open up their circles and make room for other people. See, one of the most beautiful things that I love about One Church TO is that we are a family of different generations, different genders, different cultures, different lived experiences, different economic statuses, even different makeups of families. But our richness is actually found in the fact that we identify as followers of Jesus. And that is what unites us, that we are willing to embrace humble postures so that we can obey him and his teachings, and hopefully lead others to want to follow him as well. See, everyone is embraced in the family of God. We are all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. In fact, we are all one family at God's table. And as I was um, preparing for this teaching, I couldn't think of a better way to transition in our Thanksgiving gathering than to take communion and spend some time in worship together as a community. So I'm going to invite you to take out that communion. If you're online, you can grab your juice and crackers. And we're, we're going to participate in something that, that Christians have done for thousands of years. Friends, communion was meant to be a gift, a gift for us. First for Jesus' disciples as he sat around a table and led them through it. And then for anyone who would one day call themselves a follower of Jesus. It's a gift of a meal to remind us of the gift of Jesus' sacrifice. And so as we take communion together, we recognize that we join with a community that spans across this globe. We join with followers who are sitting in big, great, beautiful cathedrals. We join with followers who may be seeking shelters in war-torn countries. We join with the underground church that's hidden and tucked away. Our realities, they may be so different from other people, but today we meet at the very same table, God's table, to remember with gratitude the gift that Jesus gave to us over 2,000 years ago. See, that was God's agape love in action, the creator choosing to lay down his life so that he could be in relationship with us again. His great pain and loss in exchange for our great hope and future. So as we turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, and remember we read that after Paul had addressed the division that was happening among the followers of Jesus, he urged them to remember 
that there is no social, economic, gender, or cultural hierarchy in the family of God. And after he had reminded them of that, then he said to them, you see, I received my instructions from the master himself, and now I pass them on to you. The master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this will be my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, as we take the bread together as a community, we want to remember that we are all followers of Jesus, that we are a community of people that have chosen to follow Jesus. Remind ourselves what Jesus chose to do on the cross for me and for you, willingly laying down his life for us so that we may experience a return to relationship with him. Let's eat the bread together. And then after supper, Paul says Jesus did the very same thing with the cup. Jesus said, this cup is my blood. It's a new covenant that I'm making with you. Each time you drink this cup, I want you to remember me. Friends, as we drink from the cup together as a community and also a community around the world, let's remind ourselves that it's because of Jesus' work on the cross that he is now able to live inside of us and change us to be more like him. So that hopefully our communities that we are a part of might recognize Jesus in us. Let's drink of the cup together. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. We are a grateful community on this Thanksgiving weekend. And on this weekend, we pause and we want to say thank you. Thank you for your presence that's at work in our lives. Thank you that in the moments that we fall short of your instructions, you continually lean towards us with open arms. Today, we are grateful to be included in your family. We're grateful of the blessing of being called your sons and your daughters. Thank you for choosing to die on a cross and then ascending back to heaven and sending the Holy Spirit so that he could come and live and be among us. So as we continue to worship in this gathering, God, we thank you that you're here with us. You're speaking to our hearts. You're leading us. You're drawing us closer to you. And our hearts, God, our hearts are filled with wonder and gratitude that you, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the very designer of our souls, would go to such great lengths to be in relationship with us. And God, while our words are inadequate, we could never thank you for the sacrifice that you made, God. We thank you for the work that you have done in our lives. And God, we thank you for this community of faith that you have chosen to place us in. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.